Shuko, if you could have any robot you wanted, what would be the most important task it should be able to help you with? Where do I start? Um, cleaning the house, hanging the laundry, loading the dishwasher, uh, mm-hmm. taking the trash out. So all of these things I currently have zero time for. It would be a blessing. What about you, Jeff? Well, mostly I just need help vacuuming to help with the dog hair. <laughs> but we have another answer. I would like to see like an ironing robot that can iron my shorts. Maybe do the entire laundry and everything and put it into the cabinet and so on. So this would really take off some work for me that I don't like to do. Tim Linder is an engineer with Bosch working on better robot technology. And he's working on robots that can better understand our environment and actually learn one skill in particular. Throwing. Throwing. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. I do have to say, I wish the laundry robot was already a reality. (laughs) I kind of got a general trend. Like, who wouldn't like a household robot that does all of these chores that we listed just currently? And if it can toss around a basketball, even better. There was a cartoon that had a robot like that back in the 70s. (laughs) Anyway, perhaps we just need a little bit more patience. Uh, We already have a lot of robots all around us. I mean, the vacuum robot, like I mentioned before, and things like this are becoming more and more common. The lawnmower variety, too. We shouldn't forget that Bosch also does. Of course. And, you know, when you think about it, cars are becoming more and more robotic with new Mm. each model. There are also robot kitchens. For example, those increasingly popular electric countertop cookers like uh, Bosch's Cook It mm-hmm. that can prepare completely different meals. Mm-hmm. And there's also some fully automated restaurant kitchens out there. And still, the, the tasks that we give robots today, they, they are still fairly limited. Right. It's just a very narrow scope. They struggle to become more versatile or adapt to environments made for humans. Just imagine what would happen if a robot were to navigate through your home. (laughs) Well, based on all the dog toys lying around, I would use the word mayhem. (laughs) Imagine you take a robot into a a children's room that is not tidy, which has all kinds of toys on the ground, for example, right? And the robot should navigate in there or just understand what is going on, right? What are all of these toys? Well, at least it wouldn't hurt him when he steps on a plastic brick. (laughs) Ow! Yeah. (laughs) That's, uh, that's not nice. But, uh, you know, typically for a robot to navigate through an environment safely, it needs to be able to recognize all of the objects in it. And scientists like Tim, exactly, uh, who are working at the Bosch Research Area, would train an object detector algorithm with lots of training data. Hmm. There are databases for that exactly, and they include things like doors and tables and sofas and so on. They include maybe like 80 or 100 different object classes, common object classes, such as a desk or a chair, but maybe not all of these toys that exist in the world. It kind of seems impossible to think about training them on all different shapes and sizes that toys come in. Mm -hmm. How would you even do that? What these systems need, what we need to teach them is how to generalize within certain object categories. That means that just like you and I couldn't categorize a toy, even if we haven't seen that toy before, a robot should be able to effectively do the same. And this is still lacking. This is a very challenging machine learning problem that a very large part of the community is currently working on that also we are looking into. 
but it's not solved yet. And for sure, Tim knows a thing or two about robots. Uh, for his PhD, he worked on a human and socially aware robot that would walk passengers through an airport and help them find their gate. This sounds familiar being Japanese, but I find it still <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> In the end, it worked, yes. I mean, like, picture an airport. Going back to the Japanese example, if I'm thinking about Narita or uh, Haneda, you know, such a busy environment. So many human beings running around. There are suitcases, um, potentially you have wheelchairs or strollers standing everywhere. You don't know if you can choose to take the stairs or the lift. Potentially there are children running around. I mean, it's, there's so much to take in. Can a robot really safely navigate through all of this? It sounds more challenging than a child's room, to be honest. We had a very successful final demonstration where it was guiding passengers through the airport autonomously without having us to intervene in any way. But... <laughs> There's always one. <laughs> yeah, of course. The reason that you and I have never seen a robot like that in an airport is that there are always cases where this just isn't working. Mm-hmm where it doesn't know what to do. And to iron out those remaining kinks is really the hard part, the, the exceptional cases. We had an encounter with a dog that mistook the robot for a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you can imagine what happened. Very unfortunate events <laughs> ensued. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the, the point is that you really can't plan for everything. You can't plan for every toy or each and every other unknown object that the robot might encounter. Mm -hmm. And you certainly can't plan for all of the situations either. But I'm sure Tim being a Bosch engineer, he has a solution, right? Well, the solution is that robots get out of their niches, that they understand more of the world in general. And in short, they become more like us. In a way, yes. In a way. Yeah, having like this ability to abstract and to semantically reason in an intelligent manner, this would really be a, a game changer. It would really allow robots to act in a much smarter way and in a much safer way, potentially. On the other hand, maybe not every, I don't know, vacuum cleaning robot <laughs> needs to have hands and legs, right? Um of course. I mean, it would kind of be funny to see a humanoid robot that would actually use my vacuum cleaner, for example, to tidy my apartment. But yeah, does it really make sense? Tim says he and his team want robots to semantically reason. They should plan their next actions and in a semantic aware manner. In simple terms, that means that a robot should understand what's going on. And in a way, it allows it to draw conclusions and adjust its own actions. So here's an example. Let's say a robot is able to perceive, for example, a microwave oven, right? Now, for example, if the robot observes that the human is walking towards the microwave in the kitchen, then we could maybe deduce that in the next few minutes, the human will be having lunch. And this reasoning allows us to then make smarter decisions. For example, likely the human would not go into the office room soon to continue working. So maybe in the meantime, the vacuum cleaning robot could clean up the office room, right? So that's not just a robot that can recognize a human or can recognize a microwave, but it kind of knows what these labels mean. And with that knowledge, it can plan its next steps more intelligently. This is just a concept, right? 
I mean, an idea, nothing that Tim has potentially already built? Well, that's mostly right. Uh, and teams at Bosch are working to make this concept a reality. Not in a household environment, of course, no, <laughs> at least not yet. The project that I'm currently working on mostly, it's in the context of intro logistics and agile production. So basically to make robots that operate in a warehouse more intelligent, efficient, and safer. And we're probably talking about an environment that is a little more organized than some households. I guess it's a good business case as well. Also imagine, warehouses are quite busy. Through the loading docks, a constant stream of new merchandise comes in that needs to be stored on those super tall shelves. The forklifts are driving the pallets around and extend all the way up to place them on the highest shelves. When needed, the right items and boxes and pallets need to be found again. Items get commissioned into shipping boxes, scanned and processed. That's where there's huge potential for robots to help humans. Workers often have to execute repetitive tasks that are straining on the body. If they could delegate some of those tasks to a robot that is comfortable in an environment like this, that would be a huge step forward. And by the way, Tim doesn't research this all by himself. Not only are there other Bosch scientists involved, but also a handful of private and academic research groups all across Europe. Their project is called DARCO. Very cool name. DARCO is short for Dynamic Agile Production Robots that Learn and Optimize Knowledge and Operations. It's a four-year research project funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. So we're talking about fundamental science. We're not just talking about a new product that we'll see on the market in a couple of years. We're talking about fundamental science and applied science also. Tim and the other researchers are not just staying in their labs. They're developing their robot for a specific use case. The main use case of DACO is aligned with a use case from the largest manufacturer of home appliances in Europe. Can you guess the largest manufacturer of home appliances in Europe? Wait, I'm going to take an absolutely wild guess. Bosch? To be very precise, the Bosch subsidiary BSH. Of course. We went to one of their logistics warehouses and we observed how human workers currently handle the commissioning of spare parts. And we noticed that for a certain selection of packaged parts, which come in many different shapes, appearances, and packaging, they toss them into commissioning baskets over shorter distances. Depending on the item, the workers don't always carefully lay them into a bin, kind of like we've discussed in previous episodes, but rather they might throw it. Now, just over a short distance, you know, say 10 or 20 centimeters. Now, the robots, however, are typically being more slow and careful and mm -hmm. precisely placing the items. And what we thought about in Daku is that uh, we could make this more efficient by actually throwing or tossing them over shorter or longer distances. They explicitly want to make the robot throw items across the warehouse? Well, across the warehouse might be a bit of an overstatement. <laughs> When they say longer distance, they mean like a meter or two, so like six feet. Okay, so I can see how that would speed things up, definitely. Mm -hmm. You know, the robot grabs an item from the shelf, tosses it into a box, and is already on its way to the next shelf. Instead of slowly driving up to the box, 
stopping, figuring out where to place the item, and then put it in the box. What this means is that the robot in Darko will not only be more human-like in its perception and understanding of the world, but also in its application of its skills. It acquires the human skill of throwing. Which must be difficult to teach to a robot. I think it really is. So I myself, I'm not an expert in throwing, so this throwing task, it's uh, not something that we at Bosch here are researching. It's instead done by our university partners in the project. But the challenge is that you have oddly shaped objects. You sometimes have objects in packaging that you cannot see through, right? So maybe a very heavy item in a cardboard box. And so you have to kind of find out what is the center of gravity of this thing. It might even shift while moving it, right? So one thing that we also want to look in Darko is um, how can we actually do this kind of perception by manipulating the object, by getting kind of getting a feel for the object. And I guess it would be easy in a warehouse full of balls. But when you toss, I don't know, a rubber gasket for a fridge it will behave very differently from a bag of screws or whatever the next item is. That's exactly right. And just like you can't train the robots on every toy in the world, you can't train them on the aerodynamics of all the items in a warehouse. Mm. It's going to have to figure it out, you know, quote, on the fly, Mm. just like people do. But even for us, throwing can be difficult, especially when it comes to oddly shaped objects that are not, you know, the, the typical bowl. But I think we found an expert in this. I love throwing so much that I throw a range of things. Kiola McGowan loves throwing. One of her favorite things to throw is a shovel. And I've got my hatchets and I've got a load of knives as well. (laughs) I'm not sure how we just went from rubber gaskets (laughs) to shovels to hatchets, Uh, but that's fine. Uh, I'm not worried. Uh, but I guess she's quite okay, yeah? Well, Kiola throws things at wooden targets. You know, um, a little bit like darts. Hey, I love darts. <laughs> Would you try throwing hatchets or shovels instead? I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed. <laughs> I just would imagine that you would want to stand clear. Definitely. But, <laughs> yeah, I don't want you in danger. Uh, but, but seriously, I imagine, because uh, we spoke about center of gravity, I, I guess that's kind of a little more difficult than a dart. Well... Kiola explains how to approach the perfect throw. By the way, she specializes in throwing axes. Oh. And if I'm being really precise, double bit axes. And for those who don't know what these are, these are like the Viking axes with the the two blades. (laughs) Which I really am like imagining Xena or something like that in front of me. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But just this past August, she became double bit axe throwing world champion. So here's the lesson. If I were to pick up a random axe, the first thing I would test in my own hands is the weight. And then I would also look at the length of the handle. So the length of the handle is going to determine my distance more or less, because depending on if you wanted one rotation or one and a half rotation or two rotations, the handle is going to dictate how much space you need to give yourself. Rotation is key. Normally, when she throws an axe, it rotates one time before it hits the target. But to achieve that, she has to stand in the right distance from the target. And how far she walks backwards from the target depends on the shape of the axe. 
maybe there's a lesson in there for the Darko developers as well. There definitely is, and more. So we weighted the object, so in this case, the axe, in our hand. We measured what we think is the right distance to throw it at the target with one rotation. And now, the actual throw. And as you're holding the axe, you're taking your aim whilst looking at the target. Then when you're, you know, getting ready for your throw, you're inhaling and exhaling, the axe is coming straight back over your head and then launching forward again. And you just open your hands at a certain point and let the axe slide out and then it arcs up, does its one rotation. And as it's finished this rotation, comes down and lands on the target. Well, she's making it sound very easy. <laughs> it is definitely easy, but to be good at axe throwing, that is very hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, maybe maybe we'll give it a, a try sometime. Uh, Shuko, maybe we could do it as like a team building exercise. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I actually know uh, one of my colleagues on my team, Chris, uh, has some experience with it. I think uh, he's going he's gonna to enjoy this episode. Uh, but anyway, perhaps I can apply my experience with darts I mean, it can't be that difficult, right? Have you tried darts? Um, so I'm good at certain things and I'm not good at other things. And I think throwing is anyways not really mine. I can kick better than I can throw. So, um, But I'll definitely try darts with you. You'll just probably win. <laughs> okay. Well, that's okay. I can deal with that. But if you want to try axe throwing, I do have something for you. Kiola shared her secret for success that got her this world championship title. I'm all ears. Throwing can be really difficult when you think about it too much. Axe throwing is definitely a head game. You can see it <laughs> in competitions when competitors are up on the line. They're thinking, is my foot in the right place? Am I breathing? Am I not breathing? Am my hand sweaty? And it just kind of, so the less thinking, the better the throw. <laughs> so I don't, I don't really want anyone to take this the wrong way, but I mean, she is the best at throwing, so... That would mean... Are you going with she might be the best at not thinking? I'm fantastic at not thinking. <laughs> <laughs> ah, what a good sport. I love it. Uh, and she also claims that you can meet a lot of nice people in axe throwing. Oh, I absolutely believe that. Uh, that's one of the facts that make me play darts also. Uh, for sure, you can always make a good friend at the board. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> back to robots that learn how to throw. Tim even wants the Darko robot to be better at throwing than she is. Better than anyone, in fact. So let's pass the mic back to Tim. Our hope is here that we could achieve at some point superhuman performance, so to become better than a human in throwing these items with high precision over such distances. That's actually really cool. It is. And another aspect that Darko researchers at Bosch are working on is the understanding of humans and their body poses. Once you understand the difference between a human that's walking, humans that are standing and chatting, and a human sitting at a workbench, you can make predictions. What will they do next? Intelligently taking anticipated human behavior into account helps the robot with its own behavior. Classical reactive motion planning approaches often result in an overly cautious robot that um, fails to produce a feasible, safe path in the crowd or that plans a large suboptimal, perhaps oscillating detour to avoid hindrances. And furthermore, um, a robot that is unaware of future human movements may be subject 
to the so-called freezing robot problem. That means the robot is blocked, it gets stuck due to the continuous, unpredicted human encounters. It's thinking too much. Let's get back to Tim's focus in the project, which is on the 3D perception and scene understanding. So making the robot recognize and discover relevant structures and objects in the warehouse. There's an interesting problem that he needs to solve. One of the biggest challenges for 3D scene understanding in industrial environments is that in warehouses we encounter many different types of objects that we aim to detect, but there is insufficient training data available. Just like the toys example from earlier. A lot of similar work is being done in an automated driving context, where cityscapes and roads and pedestrians and so on need to be detected. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of data available for that, but the training data for the warehouse environments is quite scarce. There are almost no public data sets that contain, for example, forklifts, conveyor belts, stacks of pallets or boxes that we usually encounter in intralogistic scenarios such as ours. And the problem is that acquiring such label training data for these scenarios is very costly and time-consuming. But this is because machine learning models need so much training data, right? And you'd have to label a ton of images by hand, saying which pixel belongs to which object and so on. It's a tedious and time-consuming task. And in our case, the challenge is even more complex. In robotics, we usually want to interact with the world using our manipulator, for example. And the world is three-dimensional. And labeling such objects in 3D is much harder and much more effort than in the 2D case. Tim says there's even a lack of tools that allow you to label 3D data for machine learning. Sounds like the Darko project is going to be pretty tricky and quite a lot of work. He has some ideas for solutions, of course. Uh, some proven ideas, too. And we've already talked about similar things before on the show. Uh, for instance, back in our episode on smart item picking, Christoph Marx explained how to process point cloud data from a 3D scanner. Those segmentation algorithms now try to detect objects like, for example, boxes, cylinders, blister packages, or any similarly shaped items inside the point cloud. You could also say the task is to find promising clusters of points that form an item. And as per usual, everyone who hasn't listened to that episode, I really highly recommend it. Let's back up a little bit to understand how Tim and his team are approaching these problems, especially the labeling. Let's have a look at the robot platform that Tim is using. In Darko, we use a number of different sensors, mainly cameras, some of them with fisheye lenses to cover a wider field of view, then 3D LiDAR, which gives us like a 360-degree view around the robot. So essentially, we get a point cloud of the scene, which describes the geometric structure, the distances of each single point to the robot, right? And then we also have so-called RGBD sensors. So sensors that combine a classical color camera and a time-of-flight sensor to measure distances at high resolution. So in summary, a combination of 2D and 3D sensors. Now, the idea is not to use the classical supervised learning approach where you have the problem that all of the image data needs to be manually labeled in advance. Instead, Tim favors semi-supervised or weekly supervised learning. 
One thing you can imagine is that we have an object detector, right, or a human detector, for example, that works well on camera data. And now we have our new LiDAR sensor that operates on a completely different type of data. But if we record such data streams simultaneously, then we can kind of run our existing image-based detector on the camera data. And since our sensors are calibrated against each other, we can project the labels from the one sensor stream that we know well into the other sensor stream, right? And then kind of use these weak labels, as we call them, to teach the other detector. So let's say the camera is smart enough to detect a human sitting at a workbench. Then it can practically teach the 3D LiDAR sensor algorithm, hey, by the way, that's a sitting human. That's, of course, my very scientific explanation. No, but Shuko, it's a very good explanation. It's, it's very practical. Eventually, Tim hopes that they will also be able to move into the space of self-supervised learning. In that case, the robot would basically learn about new objects on its own, perhaps a little bit like the way we deal with things that we have never seen before. It's a pretty hard problem to crack, though. Mm. I'm not claiming we will solve it in Daco because this is such a challenging task that hundreds and thousands of researchers in the computer vision community, for example, have been looking into in the last decades already, right? And it's really one of the big challenges in AI. But, you know, they will contribute something making at least a small step forward. Of course. And that's how the science works. It would be awesome to see a robot understand what a new thing is and how to handle it. Like, let's say workers in a warehouse would suddenly start using bicycles or, okay, a bit far-fetched, but skateboards. And the robot would figure out how to navigate that. Or even more simply, you would create a robot with certain pre-trained detection algorithms but when you put 10 of these robots into 10 different warehouses and each of them would figure it out on its own what it needs to add to its knowledge to move and to act in this particular warehouse, it fills the knowledge gaps that are specific to this environment. Okay, so th that's a little bit like going to a new country maybe um, or seems similar. You bring your prior life experience, mm -hmm. but you need to still adjust and figure out some new things. Maybe the street signs look a bit different, for instance. Yeah, well, we both know about that, don't we, <laughs> A little bit. And something that would help an artificial intelligence do that is what we discussed in the beginning, an ability to generalize. Basically to say, I've seen a hundred toys or I've seen a thousand street signs before. And this new object is certainly one of those, a toy or a street sign. So one thing we are also looking at at Bosch is to learn more generic object representations. That is to say, you train the algorithm in a warehouse with yellow forklifts. Then it shouldn't get confused by a green forklift. So we want our algorithms to still detect, let's say, the forklift, even if it's mirrored or if the lighting varies a little bit. For example, in the warehouses, we have very dark uh, areas, right? So we need to add lots of data augmentation to our recorded data in order to make the algorithm abstract and to learn what is really important and not to focus on these disturbances in the data that naturally occur. So can we maybe talk a little bit more about data augmentation. What is that? Mm -hmm. Well, what that means is that they manipulate or, or modify the training data to achieve more variance, 
Okay. So they're actually creating artificial or you could call it synthetic training data. Okay. And it's not necessarily realistic. But what it does is it helps the model, the machine learning, to learn from it because of the variety itself. Okay. They not only use this to improve the detection of the objects, but also the detection of humans, particularly humans that are not fully visible. And this is important in the warehouse context because you can be hidden behind other objects. What we actually did is we synthetically generated training data using a graphics game engine where we randomize the positions of humans in, in 3D space and we put lots of foreground occluder objects. So let's say you have some flying objects like tables, plants, trees, and so on, which uh, occlude the humans. Sorry, backtracking. Did Tim mention flying tables? <laughs> have robots really already learned to toss these kind of things around? I think we even had like flying pigs and what? other animals. So yeah, just to get diversity into the data. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, it didn't really matter. Because in this part of the training, the focus was on the humans that were partially occluded behind these flying objects, regardless of what the object is. That's not the important part. The question is, would the algorithm still be able to detect the human? What we found, and this is quite intriguing, is that from the synthetic data, you can very well learn the 3D localization aspects of uh, this task. We really were able to beat the existing state-of-the-art methods on actual data from an intralogistics warehouse. And we actually published this also at an academic conference. Sounds like uh, one small step for man, one giant leap for... Robot kind? No, but uh, joking aside, sounds like we're really one step closer to an actual throwing robot. Uh, and though with many more steps to come. The Dark Oak project will continue for another three years. Okay. And at the end of which, there will hopefully be a smart little robot that's tossing spare parts into boxes at a BSH warehouse. So I am definitely going to make sure that in three years, I am at a BSH warehouse mm -hmm. to yep. see this little smart robot. Follow-up episode. I love it. <laughs> exactly. In three years' time. But, I mean, do you think you'll also be able to throw axes? Uh, I, would, I would wait for some more training data on that one. <laughs> okay, well then, Keola will definitely need to wait. Oh my god, yes. Yes, <laughs> I think a robot could be really cool at axe throwing because one of the things that competitors are always trying to do is they're trying to remember where my foot position was, how was I standing, how was I breathing. Once you have the technique locked in, it's repetition, repetition, repetition. And once you get that muscle memory locked in, you will fly it. Mm -hmm. I think that you could make a deadly accurate axe-throwing robot and it would be so cool and put us all out of business, but would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure a robot could eventually be also excellent uh, because it's not going to overthink, right? Uh, Tim, however, is not so keen on the idea. <laughs> Technically, I think it is feasible with enough <laughs> work put into it and enough research. I think it is very well feasible, but... Um, I'm not sure if I wanted to try it myself. At least I, I would keep a certain safety distance. Yeah. <laughs> Very responsible answer, Tim. Very responsible. Let's leave the axe throwing to human athletes and hope for robots that maybe one day also toss the laundry into the washing machine and other things like that. And yes, that's actually a, a good final point to make. Closing the loop to household robots, 
Tim believes that eventually the technology that he and many others are now developing for industrial robots and warehouse robots, that a variant of this technology will also end up in our households. We believe that many of the technologies that we research in DACO, that they can be applied beyond this intralogistics and agile production use case, and also apply them, for example, in domestic service robots, like vacuum cleaning robots, for example. Right. And compared to today's models, they will move much more naturally through environments made for humans. They'll understand their surroundings better and plan and act more intelligently and also more easily adapt to new environments. Um, and I'll probably get less notifications about how my robot is stuck at a place it shouldn't be stuck in. Hugo, <laughs> I couldn't have said that better myself. <laughs> Dear listeners, uh, we really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please treat your robots well. Who knows how human aware they already are. Can't wait to talk to you next month when we'll have a very, very, very special episode for uh, for all of you. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be recording our very first ever from Know How to Well live show at the Bosch Connected World in Berlin. I absolutely cannot wait to see you in Berlin for this, Shuko. <laughs> Me neither. It's really going to be amazing. You'll find the links and details as usual in our show notes. And both of us are looking forward to seeing you there. Absolutely. So tune in on November 9th for the first ever live podcast or, or listen to the next episode also coming to you on November 16th, which is a little bit sooner than usual. And that's because the brand new from Know How to Wow podcast day will be Wednesday. All right, Shuko. See you soon. See you very soon, Jeff. Bye bye. And one more postscript note that I would like to say is a very, very hearty thank you to our show producers since I had a little bit of a technical error and they are currently covering up my tracks for me right now. So <laughs> thank you, Steffies. Thank you so much. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast.